Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Hey everybody, welcome to Behind the Slate. My name is Aaron Strand, and my guest today is an author and scholar. In addition to teaching at Loyola University Chicago, he wrote the best-selling book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Literary Theory and Criticism. He currently teaches at the prestigious Newbury Library in Chicago, and just finished a five-part seminar titled Chaplin, Five Films, Stephen J. Venturino. That's me. Thank you very much, Aaron. This is this is a terrific opportunity to just talk about Chaplin with someone who knows Chaplin and appreciates Chaplin, uh, and 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 uh, has a lot of, of, of background. I'm I'm looking forward to this. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I want to start off by just asking you what was what was your introduction to Chaplin? When did you first see one of his films, and what did you think when you saw it? Yeah, that's that's a good one. I I would say it, when I was a kid, I probably saw like a lot of people do silent films on TV, and they were bad. You know, the the quality was bad, uh, and so on. And 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 it, and it wasn't that interesting. But I think it was probably around college, and this is now in the eighties. Uh, I saw City Lights, and City Lights just changed everything because City Lights was. A whole movie. It was a whole experience. It wasn't just uh, Keystone Cops, and and so that re- that started it. And then I just went backwards from there. Uh, in my teaching, I did uh, some film uh, studies courses, so I was able to look at other Chaplin films, watch the development of uh, the technology, uh, uh, you know, allow people to see these films I, they'd never seen them before. Uh, but everything I think began with uh, City Lights. What was your inspiration behind your recent seminar on Chaplin? And, and what did you hope to impart and teach to the participants? I had uh, done several seminars at the Newberry Library, I still do, and generally about uh, Victorian literature, actually. I, I do uh, serial readings of long novels, the kinds of novels that are 800 pages long by Dickens or George Eliot. And what we do is we read them over eight weeks, eight or nine weeks even, uh, uh, in parts, as they were sort of originally published. And then we discuss them. We talk about the books before we're finished, rather than like a college course where you finish a whole 800-page novel and then you sit down and you say, what'd you think? And everyone says, that was good. I didn't like the ending, you know, and, and so on. But instead, we break it up. And if people are able to talk about their experiences with the novel and not knowing how it's going to end all the way through, that led to my interest in film in a similar way to to watch films with people in the seminars uh, and and to consider them specifically silent films because that is to really answer the question uh, it's because silent films are a whole nother experience than people are used to and it takes a while for people to understand that they're not just movies without sound they're they're a whole immersive experience uh, of, of watching the screen and, and looking at things that we normally don't look at as closely in film. So I was really interested in doing that. I did a seminar on, on, on silent film in general, where we hit all the high points with, uh, with, uh, with films, uh, but then decided that Chaplin was just too good. Uh, and that there were five films, the later films, the big ones, 
um, if I could say, except for the circus, um, which uh, people could see and we could discuss and, 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 and get into a little bit of, of, of the history of his life as well, because the period of the films where we were seeing ran from 1921 to 1940. And those are just say that, to say the least, the busy times. So uh, that's, uh, that was the idea to help people see the, each of those films with a lot of context and time to discuss. Certainly. Um, now, I'm assuming that some of your students had never seen a silent film before taking your class. What, what were some of the preconceptions that people have about silent films and how do you overcome that? How do you bring them into that world? It's time. It just takes a little bit of time and defamiliarizing. It, we really defamiliarize from the from the beginning. You know, there, there are people who uh, do silent films. They'll say the first thing it's they were never silent. There was always music. There was there was uh, sometimes sound effects. And then of course in the in the Chaplin films there are, there's sound like that. But uh, uh, but they were never silent. And and the, and and the second uh, tip is not to wait for the uh, intertitles. That is to say that the intertitles don't tell you something that you mostly haven't already seen. The faces tell you what's going on. But when people first come to silent films, they, they watch them too fast. They, they, they're not into the film. They're not really staring at the screen and looking with their eyes around at the little details of the faces uh, and of the exchanges. And so, but it takes maybe one film uh, and one discussion for people to realize this is not like regular films. And they all say that, whether it's college students or at the Newberry, we have a lot of, 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 of people who have, have careers and they have other jobs, but they're interested in, in seeing something new. And they all have the same reaction, which is these films are, are different. They, they require a different way of, of watching and they, they really enjoy it. I have uh, I had some, a friend, a couple uh, friends uh, who went and saw I don't know what it was, maybe a Buster Keaton film uh, with like a live musical accompaniment. And they're not cinephile people. They're not movie people. And the, hearing them talk about the magic of going to see a silent film and the attention that it required, the sort of meditative space that it draws you into was so filled my heart with joy to hear because, uh, you know, I, in some ways, just, be, you know, being a movie lover who has seen a lot of silent films, I've almost sometimes I take it for granted how special the experience can be. Have you seen that uh, with your students as well? Yeah. And first, that is perfectly put. That is exactly the way to say it, to describe the, the reaction that people have. I, I love that, uh, the, the terms you've used. Um, I really find that. In fact, we found in the seminar that we saw the gold rush and, and, and the gold rush, uh, Chaplin's gold rush, when it first came out was silent film uh, in 25. And then he remade it in 1942 with a narration. So he, Chaplin himself, is speaking over uh, the, the silent film that he had made years before, like almost like a newsreel. And, uh, and it's got sound effects and, and he does voices for some of the characters uh, when they're speaking dialogue, which in the earlier film, was indicated by uh, uh, titles or nothing because you could understand, viewers could understand what was what was happening. Uh, and when people got to that film, they'd only seen uh, uh, two films, I think, uh, already, or possibly even one. But they had been in that. They realized that meditative state that you talk about, that that sense of concentration, and even trust in looking at the screen, um, was was not there for the 1942 version. They they didn't want to hear uh, somebody talking uh, through 
the film. They wanted to get back to the, the silent film uh, immersion, uh, the silent film experience. Uh, and I thought that was neat because that, that, that's really the goal. It's not to say that any kind of film is better or worse, but to recognize that it's a different bird. It's a different, it requires a different way of watching. Yeah, that's amazing. It makes me think, you know, today, like Netflix is producing content designed so that you can just like have it on in the background. It's like, like they're specifically designing background content because they're assuming everybody's watching like, and then looking at their phone and scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And like, they hear the story in the background, but they don't really need to pay attention. You cannot do that with a silent film. Like you will just, you will miss it. <laughs> That's exactly right. There's no other cues. And, and if you look away, even for a moment, you'll, it sort of breaks the spell. You, you, you've lost the track of what's happening. And at first, I think that's, I have a particular friend who I whose name I won't mention, but she uh, doesn't like that. She, for, for that matter, she doesn't like what she calls black and white films, you know, that kind of uh, approach. And that's fine, too. People, people be people. Everybody's great. But um, the, the silent film work uh, the, the, it's probably a reaction. People feel like they have to work too hard to, to watch and study and see what's happening. But it's a really quick, or, or, or what's the term? Easy learning curve, a steep learning curve, whatever, it's fast. Once you see one, once you've done it and even discussed it with people, then then you really crave it. Then you really want to, to, to stare at the screen, not have anything on in the background uh, and, and watch what all the different parts of, of the film that have gone, that go into uh, delivering uh, not just meaning, but but emotion. How has exposure and appreciation for silent films changed both the way that you watch, you know, more modern movies, and also for the people in your class? How have you heard how their viewing experience has changed? It's a it's a great tool, I would say, for anybody who's interested in in, in talking about films. It doesn't matter where, you know, in school or in or in uh, movie groups. Uh, you know, if people want to get together, like with, with book groups or whatever. Uh, silent films help you see things, uh, film techniques, help you really appreciate film techniques because some of that other stuff isn't around. The sound isn't there, or the dialogue rather, doesn't accompany the film. You're, you're, you have to be attuned to uh, editing. You have to, be, you have to see that cuts mean something, that uh, re reaction shots, uh, eyeline matches, all of the things that anybody can talk about with any film, I think are, are, are sort of, you're invited as a silent film watcher to notice that more and that that i think that changes things because if you watch a few silent films then watch a uh you know any contemporary movie you can see more of what's going on in the contemporary movie it helps defamiliarize to use that term again uh, so-called regular films because you can see what's going on in a regular film that chaplin might have done or that keaton might have done or, or someone or lois weber i mean lois weber's um what's that film suspense it's like nine minutes long um, and really early silent film. And it's got all the, 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 the building blocks of movies in it, the chase scene, the, uh, the, 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 the suspense. Yeah, they, like in cinephile circles, you'll throw around terms today like pure cinema. And, you know, it's talking about these moments without dialogue in modern film when this uh, magic takes over. And, and I think you know, I think what they're really trying to say is that the real power of cinema, both in the silent era and today, is that through the screen, it, you can, it's like doing surgery on someone's psyche. And all of a sudden, you can see what they're thinking without them having to say it. It's about the story buried in the subtext. And that is what is the truly kind of pleasurable moment uh, of a film. And, um, 
uh, but it was being done all in the teens and and twenties, and we almost like discredit it because you know the frame rate isn't consistent or it moves a little too fast. <laughs> that's really that's that's just the case. That 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 having access to an internal life, to emotions, to the thoughts of the characters, and knowing they're there, not just in a general way. I mean, you can stare at any film, any characters on film, and know that they must be thinking something. But the way that the artists want to really communicate something through a silent film, through those faces, comes across in silent films. And that's the link to, by the way, to, to Victorian literature. I mean, reading Victorian literature, uh, anybody is struck by how cinematic it is, how, how, the, how the, the, the language itself, of course, goes into people's psyches uh, and, and into their emotions, and it helps you see that. But there's also, especially in Dickens, a lot of uh, positioning of the reader uh, visually and and spatially so that like you're reading a dickens novel and you're not just like picking up content it's not just once upon a time but it's almost as if the narrator has put you on stage while a play is going on and turns you around to to say now look at what this character is saying and turn this way and look at what that character is saying and that's what film will later do in the 20th century it's it's really neat uh, that that manipulation of the of internal uh, states only uh, purely with, with external uh, tools. That's amazing. I'm very ignorant of Victorian literature, but obviously Chaplin is a product of the late Victorian era and was hugely influenced by Dickens, um, at least claims to have been an avid reader, although we know some of his other reading claims are somewhat sus- <laughs> suspicious. Uh, but are there any other sort of Dickensian, do you think, like tr- parallels between uh, Dickens and Chaplin's later work? Yeah, yeah, I do. There's a, there's a whole book actually. Um, uh, it's right behind me. Uh, in in this world of the podcast, it's, there's all kinds of things behind me, but one <laughs> of them is a book called Dickens and Cinema, because uh, it's it's rec- it was recognized by early filmmakers, silent filmmakers, including Chaplin, that Dickens was writing shooting scripts. Uh, he was writing he was writing directions for, uh, as I said, uh, where to direct. The viewer's gaze, what, how to focus on a on a detail like a close up, and then when to bounce, uh, jump back, you know, for for a medium shot or a wide shot, uh, you know, it's really neat uh, how how effective uh, Dickens' language is for that. And Chaplin knew that. Chaplin Chaplin read Dickens. His favorite, I think, was Oliver Twist, um, which is which is fine. Mine's Little Dorrit, but uh, but they all. Uh, uh, taught those novels really taught early filmmakers uh, what to do. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein uh, wrote um, essays about specifically about Dickens uh, and how uh, individual f- words and phrases uh, in in uh, Dickens' uh, works, specifically a little story called Cricket on the Hearth, um, set up places for the camera to uh, point. Uh, in Eisenstein's mind, he was saying, "Look what this guy's doing before film. Look what look what Dickens is doing. He's imagining a kind of storytelling that really requires film. He just doesn't have it yet." So I think Eisenstein, Chaplin, uh, a lot of the filmmakers recognized uh, th- that they could take their cues uh, from this uh, th- this other medium. And of course, that 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 getting to internal states because of an external device, an external device. The book is an external device, and it it, it certainly gets to. Uh, the heart of people's emotions and thoughts. Why do you think Chaplin's work has held up so well over time when other contemporary superstars, you know, maybe more on the dramatic side, like Douglas Fairbanks or Mary Pickford haven't held up as well? I don't know. Uh, Some uh, folks have said in the recently in the seminar, 
that it's the the, the narrative coherence that the, the you know the, the a movie is those the, those movies are really uh, unified. Uh, so unlike Buster Keaton, maybe that might be a little too episodic. Uh, Chaplin's are 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 more cohesive, but that's not always true either. You know, Chaplin's got these gags, a series of gags. Even in the uh, the Great Dictator, he's got um, he's got uh, gags that have to play out like little little um, mini stories within the film. I, I don't know. I think it's that combination of of sentiment and really sincere uh, compassion uh, for for the underdog. I mean, it's easy to do in films and it's easy to play, but but Chaplin did it from the beginning of his career, this concern for the, the people who don't have a lot of power. And, he, and he's always punching up, uh, if anything, or at least offering a helping hand down. And and, and there's, I think that just sticks with people. It, it keeps coming back as something that's just, it's important to see. I meant to ask, and not to interrupt, but when did you first see um, Chaplin? Because it's probably a a small generational uh, difference. I didn't see his films as a kid that I can remember. Um, I think just after college. And at the time, the Criterion Collection was on Hulu. Uh, this was like in the, like around 2010. And um, yeah, I remember one night sitting down, I think I watched a double feature of John Ford's um, Stagecoach and City Lights one night. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. And, and first time seeing both films. I know, I'm so jealous of myself. I wish I could watch those <laughs> movies for the first time all over again. Um, and uh, yeah, it was incredible. Um, City, City Lights was also my first exposure. It just blew my mind. Um, and then I really dove all in because I was uh, I was hired to play the fool in a filmed version of King Lear. Um, which was an independently produced film of King Lear. And he, the director wanted a very physical version of the fool. And so in looking for sort of physical inspiration, uh, I think I started with like watching more Marx Brothers films, but eventually found my way to Chaplin. And that over the course of that production, which was about two and a half months, I think I watched all the features. Um, Didn't really get into the shorts so much. They were still kind of, inaccessible to me it, a lot of them i hadn't seen until i started doing this podcast um so yeah that was my full-on immersion for chaplin and that was probably in a, about my mid-20s that's really cool that's i mean the, the the physicality is something else because it's it, it again people compare keaton and chaplin and this whole idea of slapstick you know and, and pratfalls and and all that but but chaplin's different and, and that's that's interesting to hear because you could, you could study i mean not one but you could study chaplin's movements for another for a part that you know to 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 think about how how your body is moving and and what that conveys to people chaplin was very careful about that every people have said over and over how much like a dancer he was everything was like a dance absolutely and he's and he's an I, I think he's an actor's actor i mean he's really trying to cut through he's trying to cut the acting out of his out of his performance we think of silent comedy as this is this kind of mugging big faces and chaplin wanted to get rid of all that he was trying to strip everything away yeah he really was and he really believed in pantomime i mean he really believed in that and because that's the same idea thinking today's audiences may be thinking the pantomime is over the top making faces uh like the scene in uh, singing in the rain what does she say then debbie reynolds says you know you're just making uh, faces dumb show you know and she makes faces and gene kelly says yo you mean like what i do and and that that's that's 
that's fine and that can happen. But but Chaplin really believed in the power of that of that pantomime, how how you can really draw people in with with movement. You know, it was a novelty, and I think his power was undeniable in America. But in Britain, where the history of pantomime was a bit more um, in tune with the culture, and the culture so much more theatrical than it is here in the states. I think that they could appreciate it a little bit more. Have you read um, Winston Churchill's essay on Chaplin? Not all of it. It's wonderful because of it, Churchill, you know, I mean, it's just positively Churchillian. And he's talking about uh, pantomime as the oldest theater, a form of theater going all the way back to the Romans. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he kind of drolls on about the, the majesty of pantomime and how Chaplin, you know, takes this you know, multi-thousand-year-old art form and has elevated it to heights never before imaginable. It's a really difference in the in the culture, and even in France, you know, the whole the whole uh, European the sort of not to denigrate anybody in the United States, but that European tradition, as you say, of of, of theatricality and accepting it, uh, what what its range can be, and then seeing what the early uh, film people were doing with it. Yeah. Do you know? I I'm a little. Um... I mean, I, my research touched upon it some, but I know that there, you know, those early, early French comedies uh, were a big influence, particularly on Max Sennett and the Keystone style. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, those were sort of early screwball type uh, physical comedies, right? And kind of French clowning traditions. Is that, do I have that correct? Yeah, the whole, the whole Commedia dell'arte and the, and the, even the Punch and Judy and the, and the, just the, 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 the action and the fast paced, uh, the, the sort of violence, uh, you know, mild violence, um, and all is, is part of that. But everyone, you know, you can, you can direct that to kids. You can direct that to, to, uh, simple, uh, farce. Or you can recognize that farce is never simple, you know, that that are, are always not always that way, that that uh, that pratfalls aren't always just pratfalls. There's a beautiful pratfall in just to really change subjects. Uh, Dr. Strangelove, where uh, George C. Scott, you know, is the is the general and he's walking backwards and he's saying something and he, and he, he doubles, does a double somersault or something or a single somersault backwards and then pops up on his on his feet, just like an old uh, Commedia dell'arte character. Um, and and but he's saying serious things, and of course the film's about you know the destruction of the planet. These these uh, these art forms keep um, keep popping up, and there's there you know there is an, an eternal relevance to them. I think, it, and I think it's important to note you know the lineage of where they come from. And yeah, they've been around for so long; they have to be doing something. You know, it's like fairy tales or anything else. I mean, the archetypes are, they, they 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 still work. I mean, they, there's no. I mean, you can look at anything going on. Uh, right now, and they're they're still built on the same principles. Now, I want to jump ahead a little to talk about modern times. What um, I'm curious in your recent seminar, what was your sort of in uh, with that film? How did you how did you present it, and what was some of the feedback you were getting from your uh, students? Well, we were moving from uh, the kid. We first saw the kid. Uh, full on silent, but with the uh, soundtrack, or rather the the score that Chaplin himself uh, composed in '72. But the kid, and then uh, gold, the gold rush, uh, both versions of that we, we look, took a look at, uh, followed by city lights, uh, which was not really the farewell to sound, even though it came out after uh, sound films. Uh, there was there was that modern times is the farewell to sound, I mean to silent films, and that's how we really approached it. We wanted to see, I wanted to see, and we all wanted to see what Chaplin was doing after. Uh, the sound era 
emerged after the silent films that he that made him rich and that also uh, showed him uh, the promise of silent films. And he really believed in it. I mean, that's where City Lights came from. He said, I know I could make a sound film, but I don't want to make a sound film. Uh, and look how powerful this one can be in 1931. And then in 36, he does it again with modern times, but he knows at this point that it's probably his last. Uh, and so I wanted to see um, what he did with sound, with the sound effects and the way that thematically, uh, all of this, uh, all of the example, most of the examples of dialogue in that film are belligerent or uh, hostile or alienating. You know, there's the the guy in the in the screen, the boss who looks like Henry Ford is is yelling. The first words I think in the film, something like "Speed it up, get back to work." Um, whenever anybody says anything for real or in language, in connected language, like a sound film, it's it's uh, it's not good. It doesn't help people. Uh, come together. Uh, and what does the film shows us is either silence or nonsense, like the nonsense song at the end. And this is the film, the famous film where Chaplin, uh, you know, the little tramp walks away with a companion. He doesn't walk down the street alone at the end of the film. He walks away with uh, Paulette Goddard. Uh, and they don't know where they're going, but they're, they're, they're going off into a new future as all films would be doing. So we wanted to see, I wanted to see how the themes of, of, uh, of that, how, how Chaplin is so sincere about um, uh, silence still, that is to say non-dialogue, how sincere he was about how important that was still. And, and no matter what movies we're gonna do in the future, he wanted to show that you can do a lot without dialogue. I mean, and, and you can almost feel the way he's reacting with uh, Paulette Goddard, how, how, how comfortable he is, I think, to, to be sitting in a position to say, I can do anything I want. I mean, he was paying for his all of his movies out of his own pocket. He did that. And, and, and Great Dictator, they were all just independent uh, projects. There was no studio system supporting him. So he could really indulge and, and, and understand, take a broad view of his own career, his own personal life. And, and I, th I think you can feel that. I think the, the relative calmness of his personal life compared to his kind of manic, wild days of the 20s, uh, really uh, is felt in the film. Um, the film has this this just easy quality moving from one to the other, uh, or moving from one sequence to another. You know, I also think that um, city, both City Lights and Modern Times, but really Modern Times, um, you know, it was criticized at the time when it came out as sort of, well, uh, you know, Upton Sinclair said, well, this is just Chaplin's old bits uh, recycled. And I could totally get a modern, uh, a, a contemporary audience feeling that way. But as a modern film viewer, I'm so grateful because I think that Chaplin went through his back catalog, took out all the gems from Keystone and SNA and Mutual got the best bits and kind of recombined them into a cohesive narrative and left us with this heightened highlight reel of silent comedy. Um, and of course the, the comparisons are not one-to-one, -one, but I think it's like, it, it's, it, he's creating this sort of capstone for that entire era and his entire silent career. Um, that uh, in works in many ways better than having to sift through the back catalog and find some, you know, beat up print of some film from 1916 uh, to get all of his good stuff. And for that, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful. I think what you're, you're saying about the sort of 
meta awareness of silent versus sound is is really smart and it hadn't occurred to me um that that's actively what he was what he was doing i think that's um i think that's really brilliant and had to have been a part of his thinking it must when he was making it i i also like just to circle back to that idea of the of not having to sift through like older films i mean when he's making uh, modern times no one could you'd either see a film of his an old film of his at the theater or you or you didn't you know the uh, vcrs weren't out the wi-fi was terrible uh in in 30 in, what 36 but um so it would be on his mind just as you said to say like well now i'm making a film but some of these bits so-called bits they're not hackneyed bits but they really belong in a new setting you know these gems belong in a new setting and that new setting was was modern times um with 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 all of with all of its themes i think he was thinking of 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 that uh as his farewell uh and that's why i think uh, there was there's a couple of biographers who who referred to it uh, as uh, the last time we'll see the tramp, and and it really isn't, of course. I mean, I I believe the tramp, in a way, I mean, in, a, in an important way, is is in the Great Dictator. Uh, I mean, it looks like the tramp. Chaplin wants us to see that the Jewish barber is is the tramp, uh, at least in 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 a in a setup way, so that he can then uh, exit the stage um, as as the as the barber. But um, but I think he saw modern times as that as that uh, capstone, as you say, as as that way of saying, look at what we can do, not not in a not in a in a, a nostalgic way entirely, but look look at the possibilities that are still here, the themes, of course, the political themes. What did somebody call them? Uh, the uh, modern times is the gateway drug to uh, more radical views about uh, politics and uh, and and socialism. Uh, and and that you know that's the period of time when people in government uh, you know who were opposed to uh, socialist ideas uh, were really beginning to keep an eye on on Chaplin. Uh, they were pointing out that you know he hasn't gotten himself into trouble so far, but you know he's he's on these he's on these 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 points. Um, he's pointing out the reason that people uh, uh, feel unsettled. He's pointing out the reason why people uh, 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 protest. Uh, and he's and he's making that understandable to audiences. And there are a lot of people in power at the time who would prefer that nobody did that uh, and just just purely demonize anyone who would want to protest. And here's the little tramp doing, uh, as you say, doing what he's been doing for decades, uh, you know, but uh, but making and making it uh, some uh, making it a force that moviegoers could uh, identify with. And that was that was quite dangerous to to a lot of people. So he's got this neat combination uh, of the technical issues and the, the, the filmic, the, the cinematic issues and the, the social issues all wrapped up in, in modern times. Absolutely. And, and that's a great point because it's also his first postcode film. Uh, mm. The first time he's having to go through the Hayes office to get approval. Now, you know, much has been made of Chaplin's supposed communist ties, you know, some going so far as to declare him a card-carrying member of the party. And a lot of people read these ideological affiliations into modern times. Now, I personally, I just don't see it. You know, I, I see him as a, as a guy who's, you know, intellectually curious, a sort of intellectual elitist and socialist, you know, sort of within his social circles. But I don't see this sort of hard-line di- hard, hard ideology in the film. I'm curious, what is your opinion about Chaplin's supposed communist ties and how they influenced modern times? Yeah, it's it's such an important question, but it's also kind of a simple one to respond to uh, in that film. I mean, in the film, he, 
as the, the character, the, the tramp accidentally picks up that red flag at the end of the, the, the there's a truck uh, construction vehicle. And it has a red flag simply to warn people away from the construction uh, issues. And, and it falls off the truck. This red flag falls off the truck. Chaplain or the tramp rather picks it up and waves it at the truck driver to say, hey, you forgot your, uh, you dropped your flag. What he's waving a red flag and around the corner, of course, comes this parade of protesters, uh, socialist protesters, workers, uh, it was a workers uh, uh, parade. Uh, and they naturally assume that he's carrying the red flag and he's their leader. That's like what was going on with Chaplin at the time. He was being uh, uh, demonized as a communist, as a card-carrying communist. And for some people, of course, that's the worst thing in the world. For others, myself included, no problem really being a card-carrying communist. That's just that you know there are, there are important things to be done in the world that uh, card-carrying communists can can do. But that's hardly the end of social involvement. That's hardly the end of of, of social interests, the, the, the range of socialisms, of, of having concern for workers' rights and individuals' rights uh, goes much be, much farther than card-carrying communism. And Chaplin himself never joined uh, the Communist Party. He hung out with a lot of communists, but he always did so in a way that they recognized. And this is in the biographies more more than more than a few times. Uh, his com his card-carrying communist friends were always a little. Uh, uh, impatient with him, they're like, "Come on, could you could you please say more? Could you could you be more doctrinaire?" And that's the that's the line. He was never uh, worried about dogma. He was never worried about the, the rules of communism. He was worried about the spirit. He was interested in the spirit of socialism and communism. And he didn't have the political answers. And so I, I think that's what made uh, people on the right um, so worried about him. On the one hand. Uh, but then so unable to uh, blame him on the other because he, he wasn't a communist, but he was doing things that would that would unsettle people. And uh, and th that was tough. It's like they, they threw they got through all kinds of charges at him in order to get to him. And uh, and and this this idea that he wasn't he, just because he wasn't part of a, of, a, of a particular party doesn't mean he wasn't dangerous to those in power. But it also means that he wasn't going to uh, uh, toe the line. Uh, and it shows, I think, I, I, just to, sorry, to interrupt and go back to why I think like Chaplin's films are still watched. That's another reason. I mean, you can look at something like uh, Eisenstein again with, with Strike or October and, and what's the Potemkin. Those are great. But I mean, there's a lot of attention to a kind of program there for, for social change uh, that has uh, intellectuals, you know, sitting around a table discussing how the differences and the, 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 the niceties of that program. And Chaplin's less program and more spirit. He's more, he's, he's more, you know, less uh, what you should do than why you should do something. Uh, Chaplin is always trying to uh, expose us to the reasons that social change is necessary, but he's not forcing us to see a particular path to, to make those changes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a excellent observation. You know, as a uh, filmmaker and artist myself, I'm always trying to glean you know, what lessons can we really learn from these great masters more than just this shot looks good or this, you know, whatever. Um, and there's two things that we've touched upon in sort of the last like 10 minutes that I kind of want to circle back on that I think modern filmmakers could really stand to learn from Chaplin in this film. The first is that lack of ideological sort of hardline um, dependency uh, and this sort of being aware of, of, of social injustice while also not necessarily prescribing the 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 the, the action uh, to solve it, and the second is, you know, we talked about this notion of of 
modern times being a, a capstone to his career that he's taking old old gags and yet you said it perfectly it totally lacks sentimentality um you know we're uh, modern uh modern content is so awash in sentimentality you have entire movies being created to just capture the sentiment behind some 90s you know christmas movie you know i think christmas story christmas story 2 uh you know just came out and it's just a total exercise in sentimentality and yet chaplin uh had the foresight to completely avoid these pitfalls and and always try to get somewhere deeper with his stories yeah and sentimentality I, I, there's there's an aspect of sentimentality that's kind of unavoidably conservative when you think about it that is that when people are, you know you're exposed to something uh uh, sentimental, and you think that that might be neutral politically, but it, it really isn't. It, it allows people to feel good about or bad, and that's that's that, 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 that their ways about things without really worrying about them, without being unsettled. It, it feeds into people's own emotions, and that's good. I mean, that can be good too, a catharsis kind of uh, circumstance. Whereas Chaplin's always got an edge. You know, he, all of his humor is is there's a little danger, you know, or, or a lot of danger in in what the tramp does. At times, he's always thumbing his nose at authority, at police. He's always, but he, but he's not just doing it to be funny. He's pointing out how often, and it's I think it's probably in every film, every other film we've, we've discussed, that he points out not just saying it, not not accusing anyone, but he just shows that the that authority is often there to make sure that those who have keep what they have, and those who don't have stay out of it you know that he's he's really showing that uh in in most of his films and th and that's not sentimental you know there's there's funny and there's goofy and there's there's slapstick but but chaplin always has this edge i think that reminds us that uh beneath uh the emotions that we're feeling because because you can i, I mean i all fall apart at the end of uh city lights every time but there's a there's a there's a feeling there that uh that, that there's an importance to the the social bond uh, that, 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 that stays with you when you leave the theater. It's not just, as you say, watching a, you know, sequel after sequel and just sort of indulging in things you already know and already feel. Uh, you're, you're challenged, I think, watching a, a Chaplin film. Now, I, so I want to take that and kind of move on to his next film, of course, The Great Dictator. Now, Chaplin made The Great Dictator at the outset of the Second World War, you know, with pre-production happening before the Nazis even invaded Poland, um, and before so many of the horrors of the Nazis, you know, came to uh, many Americans' minds, how did he manage to capture so much truth about that regime and about fascism in general, all the way in you know 1938, 39, and of course 40 when the movie comes out? Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? I mean, just to just to just to con consider, and that was the reaction of the participants in the seminar by and large was that this is an astonishing film uh that it was made at all that 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 you know, the chaplain did this um i always felt that chaplain knew a fascist when he saw one he always did his his whole life he knew what what bad people uh especially in power can do and there's a quote by um michael wood that i i, I included just last week when talking about this that uh, in this film it, it, it Michael Wood, the critic Michael Wood, is, is, is saying that, of course, everybody knows that he makes the dictator ridiculous. He makes the Hitler character uh, and the Mussolini character look ridiculous. And that's all well and good. That's that's the funny part. 
But Michael Wood says it, it doesn't just make the dictator rid ridiculous, but he reminds us of how much harm even ridiculous people can do. And that's really important uh, for what uh, Chaplin was up to, because he saw the ridiculousness in Hitler. I mean, he grew up... I, you know, Chaplin had the mustache first. That's the that's the you know that's, that's the first thing people need to keep in mind. He had the mustache first, and it was Hitler who thought, "Hey, maybe if I have this funny little mustache, people will think of me nicer, or they'll I'll get some of that uh, that 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 uh, that aura from Chaplin." Uh, they were born what is it four days apart? Uh, you know they they had kind of similar upbringings. I mean a lot of differences, but but there's no question that in the 20s and in the 30s. Uh, people recognized that Chaplin, that Hitler looked like Chaplin and that uh, Chaplin was going to have to do something about it at some point. And Chaplin had always wanted to make a Napoleon movie, for example. So he puts, a, he, he, and he abandons that, make a long story short, and he puts, um, I'll let you do the longer story longer because it's really interesting. <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm so interested in hearing what you have to say about that. Uh, I, I, I would love that. So he abandons most of the Napoleon uh, story as Napoleon, but then moves it over to uh, the Hitler story because that's right in front of him. As you say, this is it was in 37, 38, 39 when he's making that film. And there are horrible things happening. Now, it's true that the full extent of what was happening was not known. And there's a famous line from Chaplin. He says, if I had known the extent of the, the horrors of the concentration camps, I never could have made uh, the great dictator. And that's true. But as he's making it, more and more information is coming out. And Jews knew. Jews knew in this country uh, what was happening. There were, there were the, you know, the public may not be talking about it in the papers, but people knew really how bad this was. And you can see just by watching the film that, that Chaplin knows how vicious the regime was. So he wanted to make a statement. And that's what's astonishing, because why would you? You know, if you, he's got he's, it's his own money. He could do anything he wants, but he he had to he had to make that film. Even he says that, and I think that that's that's that just shows a lot of integrity as a, as an artist to to say uh, that I'm going to make that film, and it shows a lot of prescience. People will say that it, uh, with hindsight, uh, how how much we see uh, these days. But I think what's particularly laud uh, noteworthy is is how. Chaplin saw it then. He understood it in 1940 how bad it was and how important it was to, to make to make a stand. He says that in the New York Times. He had an article in the New York Times published in 1940 when the film came out, uh, sort of defending uh, the ending, for example, or the politics of that film, saying to people, "Look, I, I want to have a, I want to make a statement," and he literally says, "We need to take a stand," and that's good. That's very good. And, and in these times, it's good to know that we don't have to wait until the worst happens to take a stand. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just it's just amazing. And to think that also he was going to take this stand while also simultaneously making the leap into talking films, something he That's had resisted right. for a decade. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. What do you, how do you think that jump into talkies kind of affected this um this incredibly courageous piece of art. Yeah, that was that was huge. That's a really good point because the the two are, are I mean they are happening again. He's he's it's sort of like he's coming back. You know, Chaplin's coming back after uh, the farewell of the of modern times because he has to and and do this. I, uh, one of the things that has come up in our discussions in the seminars is the uh, the naming, the naming rather of of characters in Chaplin films. It's the tramp, you know, the the gamine. The, the, they don't have names like George. 
and and so on. And, and why is that? And and one answer is that they're types. They're supposed to be more like types, uh, archetypes, or or uh, you know uh, general uh, figures rather than specific characters. But in this film, they're specific. They're specifically named with those hilarious names, uh, Napoloni and Hinkle, and and so on. They're they're really good. Um, but they're also named because they are individual people. He does want to point fingers and say, these are the, the people as individuals who are uh, causing this problem. Of course, there are types who are like that as well. But I think Chaplin realized that he had to do two things with this film. One is point fingers at real people, individuals, and not, not uh, uh, pull any punches. And the other was to own up to sound, the, 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 the usefulness of sound in that the screams in this film, there's not a lot of dialogue, even so, in this film, and and a lot of the action carries the emotion, the dance-like movements. Uh, when they're when they're being chased, for example, on the street corner, one I remember one example, when the the uh, Hinkle or the Hitler guy is talking over the speakers, and he's yelling, and the way he yells uh, is like a song, and the way that Chaplin and and uh, Paulette Goddard have to dodge that voice down the street, and I, I could, uh, that, that really is beautiful. It's like a choreographed scene of, of menace. And, and that's, that's all done with sound. Chaplin is saying to everyone, look, you, there are good things you can do with sound. And I'm gonna show you some of those good things that we can do with sound. And, and, and as I said, this, the, the screams and the violence of the film uh, would, would not be the same in a silent film. So I think ironically, perhaps, or tragically, Chaplin found one of the greatest uses of a sound in a sound film, of sound in a sound film, uh, was to uh, give an audience a, a, a very uh, sobering feeling about violence. This had never really occurred to me, but I always find it so interesting how quickly or slowly artists adapt to technological innovations. You always have those early first adopters, and then you'll also have the resistors, right? And Chaplin was both in his lifetime. He was, a, you know, kind of jumped into... Uh, film as a medium, at least relatively early uh, in his career. Film had been around for, for some time, but he's still, he's, he's right there when Los Angeles is just becoming a, a movie-making center. Uh, so, you know, he had been an early adopter and yet obviously resisted sound for about a decade, whereas Adolf Hitler embraced sound and it was key to his mass media empire. And it's almost as if Chaplin during that time of resistance, and maybe it was just, you know, maybe he was scared, maybe it was just personal personal gripes or whatever, but at some point he must have sat back and started to observe how sound was affecting the population and how sound was affecting culture. And that, res that restraint led him to be able to make this incredibly pointed statement and to try to undo the evils of that sound had allowed Hitler to do. Uh, with this film. Do you think that's a part of his thinking here? That's great. Yes. It's, I mean, he's really, and it, some have said he's reclaiming the tramp from, from anything, any interference Hitler may have, have, have caused. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's new technologies often hide old habits. And, and, and Chaplin knew that, uh, that, that just because you're doing something new technically uh, doesn't mean you're doing something new thematically or emotionally or socially. Or, in fact, sometimes it's very often it's the opposite. 
uh, the, the new technology just gets taken up in the service of a, of a very old program. And I think that's what you were describing, the way that the, the chaplain wasn't an early adopter, but he was a thoughtful adopter, whereas some of the early adopters just rushed into to making sentimental films, um, musicals. And I love those musicals, by the way, of those times, those earliest ones. I mean, those are that's another boy. Is that another uh, podcast I'd like to hear about is the what's it called? Nelson Eddy and uh, uh, the other one, um, Jenna McDonald. Uh, those musicals, those are great, and, and, and the whole thing with Lubitsch. Um, anyway, those are wonderful. But then there's a lot of, you know, again, reactionary stuff or just just sort of casual conservative stuff you can do with with new technologies. But no, as you said, Chaplin was Chaplin was 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 he was right there. He appreciated in the 20s in the in the teens uh, what what film could do, and uh, and others were thinking of it as a as a as a silly. Uh, 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 entertainment. Um, I mean, just to take your point a little further. I mean, he, you know, in the, he developed film. He helped show, you know, film is not just uh, a silly little diversion. Uh, it's a, it's a real art form, and and uh, Chaplin was responsible for for helping people realize that. You brought up the New York Times article. It's amazing to think that upon its release, Chaplin had to defend the final speech. I mean, this is now considered you know, one of the, the great moments of cinema or greatest speeches in, in film history. But at the time, you know, people did not know what to do with it. First of all, you know, what do you think accounts for that reaction in, in 1940? And furthermore, you know, how has that, uh, that speech appreciated over time? And, and what does it have to teach us today? Well, you know, the lure of film, I mean, it just, no matter how many, how expert one is like at cinema, uh, the, you know, there come times uh, where you just sit and you, you the, the old expression, you lose yourself in the film. You know, you're just you're just there in the film and you're, and you're paying less attention to some of the some of the details. Um, and, and that can happen even in The Great Dictator. And I think that that was interesting to hear from some of the participants in the seminar, thinking that when they got to the end and they heard that speech, even they would say that was disruptive. You know, that seemed out of character. Now, they're not saying it in a bad way, like many critics did, because many critics did say that was just ridiculous. You know, why would you come out and say that? It's really breaking the fourth wall. Uh, and as you've said, to which Chaplin's response is, yeah. That's, yes, it sure was because I, I want to. And he also said, you know, what is this film is like? It's uh, it's an hour and seven minutes long, or I mean, two hours or something and seven minutes long. If two hours and three minutes are funny, then give me my four minutes to to pontificate. Um, there's that, but I I think that uh, I think part of it is 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 that people who don't want to hear that message uh, play up their dismay at its artful or it it it's it, 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 the the way it's not artful. You know, I don't think it strikes them as that unartful. It's actually prepared for us in the film. There's a scene in the middle where Paulette Goddard turns and looks right at the camera and says, what if they just left us alone? Wouldn't it be great if we could go back, uh, we could stay in this country and we, won't, we wouldn't have to leave? Wouldn't that be nice? And she's looking right at the camera. And some people watch that scene and they say, well, she's doing that thing you do in film where you kind of gaze off into space and talk to yourself. But she's not. She's talking directly to the camera in the way that, uh, Chaplin will at the end of the film. And that's the other thing that's so meta about this movie. I mean, uh, Chaplin knew he he had to, uh, to cross lines, break the fourth wall, walk out, and 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 say things 
so that people would, on the one hand, be lured into the film as a fiction, but then always remember where the edges are, where the boundaries are, because outside the boundaries of the theater is this tragedy, is this is an absolute atrocity uh, in an international situation, in the in the international situation. So, I think he he was perfectly justified. Uh, in doing that, I think most people recognize that it's a it's a it's a terrific statement that he makes at the end of the film, even when it ramps up and he begins to talk quickly and and almost sound more like the Hinkle or Hitler character himself, you know, thereby reminding us that uh, and he, and Chaplin himself said it, but you know, there, but for the grace of God, go go I, that he with all of his power, Chaplin with all of his power, could have turned that power and charisma and manipulation to horrible ends. Uh, like uh, Hitler did, but uh, Chaplin was always aware of Hitler's theatricality and the way that he 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 was doing. Hitler was doing things that Chaplin was doing as well, but for terribly different ends. I like this. I like the speech at the end. I think it's it's uh, it's. I think it's fascinating, and I I think it's a it's a really good way to end uh, that film because it 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 doesn't end the film in the film. It ends the film by pointing you out into the world. It's an amazing jump into sort of didactic narrative rather than purely emotional experience, which had been his bread and butter. I mean, it's guaranteeing that people leave the theater talking about it, right? And, and yeah. you feel compelled to ask the, your date yeah. or your friends, what did you what did you think about that? I mean, what, that's right. What, you know, yeah. and and that conversation starter is it's pretty incredible. It, really incredible. I mean, it'd be incredible for 1940. It's it's incredible now. Uh, you know, people weren't quite sure and you know, sometimes in the seminar we're what what we're supposed to be you know, talking about, but it, it really worked. I mean, who, that is to say, we're how loud one's criticism or how obvious one's criticism can be. But I mean, let's face it, you know, we live in a world where, uh, you know, where we really have fascists uh, d- with some charisma causing a lot of trouble. And, and that needs to be um, addressed. Yeah. Do you, how do you feel that Chaplin's speech or just the great dictator as a whole kind of speaks to our, our modern era? You know, what, Either just maybe just you as an individual, what do you take from the film living today in 2022? Yeah, that's that statement about and, and he says it in the speech, I think, doesn't he? How technologies that are designed to bring us together are doing just the opposite. I mean, that's clearly uh, applicable to everything around us. The Internet, you know, is supposed to be bringing us closer together. And it often creates these little little groups, these little uh, cohorts of 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 of, of terribleness or and also of goodness i mean you know the bonding that goes on in, in small groups but the the way that the far right groups in this world are able to find each other uh and and think of themselves as as being uh, more dignified and having more uh, numbers and having more respect than they really do is partly due to the technology you know the internet i mean it used to be if you were really mean angry and and, and if you were a psychopath you'd run down the street and say things or you'd publish things on your own with some paper and six people would see it. These days, of course, you can get any message out and there will always be people who will say, you're right. I've been thinking the same thing, no matter how vicious or, or mean-spirited your, your message is. And I think that's what he was speaking to in 1940. Chaplin, you know, went through a period of, 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 of well, several periods of, of retrospection and, and dismay, thinking that here is America, this great country that he came to, uh, feeling that it was going to, help the world. In the 20s and, and even into the 30s, he really had felt the promise of, of America. And, and through the 30s, that began to wane because he could see, again, the waste 
the the the, the use that people were putting uh, their technologies to uh, was not good. Uh, and, and beyond not good, it was bad. And then, of course, the onset of the war just shows technologies only being used to uh, to kill people or to uh, uh, control people. And that, that that's just not good. And that's still happening now. So that's I mean, my takeaway from that is like this. This fight is still is still out there and it's not going to end. Therefore, like Chaplin, what do you do before? And he's not making this film in 1945. He's not making this film when the allies go in and see what's going on in the camps. He's making this film when there's a lot at stake in terms of people pointing at you and saying, you're overreacting. Uh, things aren't so bad. You know, this isn't your war. This is Europe's war. This is all about the Jews. Uh, he says, no, I, this is my problem. And I think that's what people should feel today about uh What's going on with the with the far right and the fascist uh, uh, programs? Uh, real programs, not just fascist feelings, but fascist programs and 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 politics, local politics, and school boards. The way that uh, people feel they have this really loud voice to shut down other uh, other people. It's uh, it's terrible. So I think that the, the, a film like that can help. Uh, I think identify us with uh, the underdogs who uh, can still take a stand. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Um... And I, and I absolutely agree. Just to kind of wrap up here, what would you say to somebody who has never seen a Chaplin film, uh, maybe is on the fence about <laughs> pressing play on their streaming app or even going to a theater, if a theater is lucky enough to be playing one, uh, what would you say to them to convince them that, that these old movies and particularly the work of Charlie Chaplin is still worth watching? They've got to watch it, uh, watch anything. Uh, I'd say City Lights is a great, uh, way to start. City Lights is just a, a really interesting film because it plays with uh, sight and and uh, as a theme, and the ideas of sight and blindness. And so it's it's really made for a silent film. It's made to both engage a, a viewer thinking about what they're seeing on the screen and what the screen is telling them about the message of what it means to see uh, and and the way you, you can communicate without uh, without dialogue. It's, it's written into the film, um, and that's not all true of every silent film. Silent films can be great, but they're not all about that. It's almost like City Lights is a film about silent film uh, in a good way. Um, but the first advice is simply just to, I don't know, take it slow. Find, find even if you're watching a, a, an hour-long movie, and that's right, an hour long. But take 20 minutes and just don't do anything but watch the film. You don't have to kill yourself or go crazy or, or do anything too serious, but just don't let any other distractions get to you. And as I mentioned before, earlier at the, or at the beginning, that one or two times doing that, one or two sessions of doing that kind of, it hooks you. You, you realize it's not work. It's not hard. It's, but it's the opposite. It's pleasurable to, to enjoy that. But, but it's not familiar to people. So I'd say sit down to City Lights, watch the first 20 minutes. Watch uh, The Immigrant or Soldier Arms for shorter films of Chaplin's, but do it without uh, distractions. Uh, get a good print. Uh, listen to the music that's being played while you're watching the film because they always had something accompanying them. Uh, and, uh, and just, and, and, and just uh, you know, enjoy what it is that, that you're looking at. Just take it as a, as a, very, as a very strange, that, maybe that's it. I'll go all the way back and here's the last thing I'll say. Think of it as a strange experience. Don't think of it as 
another thing to watch on a screen, another thing to do that's familiar to you. Uh, every time I watch a new silent film, because they're also all different. We talk about silent films, like people talk about books, like, oh, you like reading? How about reading this? Like there are <laughs> lots of different things to read. And there are a lot of different silent films. So whenever I see anything new, I need to say, this is different. This is going to be strange. I need to uh, see what it's uh, what it's all about. I love that. I love that so much. Do you have an upcoming seminar? Are you working on anything in uh, for the upcoming year? My, my plans are to listen to you uh, as often as possible. I have really, really liked this uh, uh, this conversation and listening uh, to, to what you've had to say. It's just, it's just this is great. Um, but in, as far as seminars, let's see, what do I? Uh, uh, I'm going to do another uh, serial reading of Charles Dickens' David Copperfield. Uh, actually, uh, that's coming up in after the first of the year. And there are a lot of film versions of Copperfield, you know, the one with Harry Potter is the kid or whatever. And then there's a new one with Dev Patel. that's really good. So we'll be looking at the film versions of Copperfield and that. And then there are, I'm doing three films by Lois Weber. Lois Weber was an early pioneering uh, film director. She was the most uh, powerful and well-paid film director. And that includes D.W. Griffith uh, back in the teens. She was huge and very influential. So we're going to watch three of her films uh, at the Newberry, or rather people will watch them and we'll talk about them and, and their experiences at the Newberry. So that's Lois Weber. And, and then moving forward, we'll see what comes up. Send, send me your suggestions at any, at any point I would like <laughs> for, for other seminars. I would love to cover uh, Lois Weber on a future. Uh, a future oh, I bet you will. Yeah, I'd because, love yeah. to hear it. I mean, that really neat career, too. I mean, that's another. You know, she also directed she also directed Mildred Harris, uh, Chaplin's first wife. Right. Uh, in, in seven, seven films. Uh, I'm bad with details, but six or seven films. Um, yeah, there's there's a connection there. She's she's just fascinating and a name that everybody should know. Um, the the women of this time period uh, is a story that is not talked about enough. So I love that you're doing that. That sounds amazing. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I, I really, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this conversation. Where can people find you and learn what you're working on next? Oh, just watch movies and read books. Uh, you, you, you don't need me. Uh, I've got I've got a website, um, stephenjventurino.com, but it, it really just posts uh, what it is I'm up to with the Newberry uh, and, and moving forward. And then the Idiot's Guide that I published almost 10 years ago um, is still out there. And that's, that's, that's something that people could pick up if they wanted to. Uh, look at literary theory, which is also really applicable to film theory. But really, the best way uh, to move forward is just to watch things you like and and, and be open to, to new stuff. Everybody should just go out there and and watch a film, uh, silent film, and uh, have a drink and talk about it. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Stephen J. Venturino. And until next time, that's a wrap. That is all what else but you